0: All right, bang, and we're off. Episode five of the Border Wars podcast. We're down a man this week. It's just me and Smitty here with y'all tonight. How you doing, Smitty?
1: Good, good. Uh R.I.P. Sawyer's gotta,
0: yeah.
1: gotta do some work. He's back to back to work.
0: Yeah, someone's you know, someone's gotta feed the masses, man. Sawyer's the one to do it. So we we miss yeah. him. But uh show goes on. Uh you know, we had we had a tentatively possible reschedule to tomorrow night, but uh, your boy Smitty's got a got a hot date for tomorrow night, so he's not able to, to reschedule.
1: Yeah, we were supposed to do it tonight, but uh, old Whitney's got to uh, do some dog sitting, so it worked out perfectly. Yeah. For me, at least.
0: Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's just jump right in because. Uh, Man, each week, I just got to say, The Last Dance does not disappoint. It keeps on getting better and better every week. And uh, last night were probably two of the most emotional episodes thus far. Who knows what to expect for episodes 9 and 10. But, uh, man, yesterday was just full of drama. Last night, uh, I was glued to the television. Uh, couldn't stop watching. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Uh, episode 7 opens with a press conference by Jerry Krause. And you finally see where that audio from the... Uh, uh, the theme intro comes in where Jerry Krause says there's no backstabbing going on here. Uh, he was asked a question by Craig Sager, um, who was with TNT at the time, uh, about the inner turmoil of the front office and Phil Jackson and, um, you know, how the team was was moving forward with all the backstabbing. And uh, that didn't get a great reaction from Jerry Krause. It didn't get a great reaction from the other reporters there in the room at the time.
1: No, I I just imagine like all the other reporters just pissed off at him that they had to probably drive all the way down there and that that interview was less than than two minutes long.
0: Yeah, uh, the the quote of the night was "Way to go, Craig."
1: <laughs> yeah, you know we all know Cra- we all know someone named Craig, so you know yeah. that I like I immediately think of the Craig that I know and just you relate to it and cracks yeah. me up.
0: It, it reminded me – do you remember the uh, the meme that was going around of that hockey dad banging on the glass and he shatters it onto the ice? So he's like banging on the glass on the side of like a high school hockey rink and the ice shatters down and the game stops. You just hear this lady in the back go, way to go, Paul. That's exactly what it reminded me of. <laughs> exactly what it reminded me of. Because Craig Sager is like one of like the – like the late, great Craig Sager was like one of the most respected like reporters – in basketball, but he did not have any fans in that press room that day.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, my question is, you know, what, what do you expect with uh, that kind of, you know, questioning? I I know he's kind of getting into the nitty gritty of it and he's, he's probably asking questions that uh, fans and and other people want to know, but I think he had to, kind of worded it a little bit better, um, and he would have gotten a little bit better response. But I understand the question, but um, yeah, I think he should have just done just a little bit better wording on that one.
0: Yeah, and I think what people have to understand is that, at least from my perspective, Krauss put himself in that situation. I mean, he was the one who declared, we're not restructuring Pippin's contract, he's not coming back at the end of this season, we're not renewing Phil Jackson's contract, he's not coming back, we hope to have Michael back, but... You know, if he decides it's his time to end with the Bulls dynasty, so be it. And that was a situation entirely manufactured by Jerry Krause. And he may think in his mind there's no backstabbing going on. But the comments he's made in the locker room, in the media, the comments he made after the 93 championship against the Phoenix Suns, he said it's not about uh, just the team. The team, win, you know, the team is a great team, but this organization is world class. He's trying to take all this credit for something that was clearly Phil Jackson's responsibility, Michael Jordan's responsibility, and the rest of the guys on the floor. So to take credit and say, oh yeah, it's the front office that's the, that's the reason this is a great organization. He had been taking those kind of shots across the, the bow for for years. So I think the 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 question, while maybe he views it unfair, was one he certainly set himself up for.
1: Yeah, and I I completely agree. I think during the first episode, you know, I had said, um, you know, I kind of didn't hate him like everybody else. But the deeper that we get into the series, I'm kind of like, you know, why did he do this? You know, I I made the comment (laughs) in the first episode about maybe he wanted to to show everybody that he could do it without Jordan, without Phil Jackson. But, you know, when it's good, it's good. And when it's bad, it's bad. It's like, why would you why would you want to tear down? Um, you know, or even least entertain the thought of keeping Phil Jackson, you know, at least Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan, you know, I I know that there's differences between uh, him and Pippen and obviously um, Horace Grant was already gone um, by 98, you know, at least keep those two centerpieces there to at least, you know, drive up revenue um, at least get some wins, try to, you know, get some playoff pushes if it was just going to be just Jordan and Phil Jackson. Because in my opinion, you know, I was going to ask your thoughts about this. Phil Jackson, to me, has got to be the greatest NBA coach of all time. I mean, he won six in Chicago and and five in in, in L.A. I mean, what's your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, (laughs) I think he was a great ex. Good.
0: It's interesting because I I think he was he's the greatest modern day coach of all time. Uh, You have to look at the success of Red Auerbach in Boston for that long stretch and how he was able to win championship after championship. Um, He did that basically pulling all the strings. He was in charge in the front office. He was the general manager, the coach. He finagled the way to – he drafted Larry Bird before he had even graduated. He traded traded essentially the rights to like a circus show in Boston – to uh, another team at the time to be able to draft Bill Russell number one. Like he traded a revenue stream for the Garden at the time in Boston to be able to draft Bill Russell. So like comprehensively, it's Red Auerbach and Phil Jackson like 1A, 1B. But in terms of modern day, the only other guy I can think of that comes close to Phil Jackson is Pat Riley. Uh, bes- besides that, there's really no one even in a stratosphere in terms of I guess Popovich to a certain extent Popovich and Riley are the two closest things to Phil Jackson, but they don't even sniff 11. They, you know, Popovich has five. Uh, I, I don't know how many Riley has off the top of my head. He has at least one with the heat and several with the Lakers. I think five with the Lakers. So he has six championships. Um, so yeah, modern day coach Phil Jackson is, is leaps and bounds ahead. And, you know, people always look to his New York Knicks tenure, As being relatively unsuccessful, and they say that possibly tarnishes his reputation. But just look at the revolving door of people that have tried to go in there and write the ship in New York. He brought in the talent that that they needed to 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 take it to the next level. It's just interference from from up above from James Dolan, probably the most difficult man to work for in sports. So yeah, I think Phil Jackson has has 13 championships all time as a player and as a coach. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, He's in no doubt one of the greatest to ever do it, if not the greatest coach of all time. So yeah, I I would agree with you there. If he's not the greatest, he's definitely one of the greatest.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we can dive into it a little bit later on in the episode, but um, just the way he, not only just the X's and O's, you know, he obviously did the the triangle offense, but um, a player's coach, you know, that's kind of something that's really not seen very much today. Um, You know, you see a lot of players that, Practically run the team themselves, you know. Yeah, yeah. Not like going to name any names, but <laughs> LeBron. <James. laughs> uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, you know. I know it's a, I coach youth basketball, and I know it's on a completely different level. I coach, you know, seventh grade A team. But part of having a successful team and getting got getting the best out of those guys, in my opinion, was to connect with them on a personal level to try and build a relationship with them and figure out what makes them tick, figure out what to say and how to say it to get the absolute best out of them. And Phil Jackson is the all-time at doing that. He knew which buttons to press. He knew which guys to wrap his arm around. He knew which guys to push harder. And he also knew when to step back and let players work it out amongst themselves. We'll get into it later, like the Steve Kerr and, and MJ fight. He knew how to manage all those egos into one cohesive unit and allow it to work. Um, so yeah, I, in terms of play, in terms of relationship management, I mean, I think a lot of pr- business professionals and people who are leaders, you know, around the country today can take a lesson from Phil and basically just getting people to work together. People who probably in another world would hate each other, you know, uh, like Rodman and, and, and Michael and Pippen when Pippen, Pippen, uh, did not had some run-ins with Rodman when he was with the Pistons and so did Jordan. And they were able to coalesce and work together. So, yeah, I think it speaks a lot to Phil Jackson's character and his, and his ability. Um, but let's, uh, yeah. let's do- dive into the content of the show a little bit further. Uh, it starts off with the '98 Eastern, Eastern Conference first round against the New Jersey Nets, um, and Michael, you know, has some pretty, pretty strong opinions at the beginning of the series how uh, how how it's going to go. He basically says the only way that the New Jersey Nets can beat us is if we're were uh, were playing asleep and uh, they pushed him to an, uh, to an overtime in that first game. They eventually did complete the sweep, but uh, the Nets gave him a run for their money. And a uh, little known fact at the time, the head coach of the New Jersey Nets was uh, Kentucky head coach John Calipari, uh, and uh, they gave him a little bit of a scare. Uh, and so I, I, I don't know what your thoughts were on on kind of you know seeing that and, and seeing Michael's trash talk almost come back to bite him in the ass, as, I, as I'm sure it did you know several times over the course of his career.
1: Yeah, um, you know, they they even brought that up, you know, is this, you know, could this uh, affect the Bulls, you know, how they come out of the gates, and luckily, luckily Jordan said that in the first round, you know, and they got that early wake-up call, Um, you know, if this would have been in the semifinals, it could have been a lot more dangerous um, and to a better team, Um, but I think at that point, you know, and, and it shows throughout the episode that Jordan was. Jordan knew that he was going to do whatever it took to, to get his team to win. So he could get away with with that trash talk. You know, um, it, it's hard to it's hard to say something. Um, you know, like they call it Bolton material, um, and back it up. You know, but Jordan was Jordan was a completely different animal.
0: Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't write checks your mouth can't cash, or you don't you don't let your mouth write checks your body can't cash, Whatever the whatever that saying is. But, um, you know, the way that the documentary is structured, we talk about it, it's kind of all over the place. So we end with the end with the sweep of the nets, and then we go all the way to back to 93 after they've defeated the Phoenix Suns. And, uh, Michael starts to discuss his relationship with his dad. And we all know as we're watching where this is leading, because this is very close to the time of the murder of James Jordan, senior Michael's father. So on July 23rd, 1993, um, Jordan's best friend goes to pick up um, James Sr. at the airport um, to come in for a charity event for Michael. And he doesn't arrive. And the family assumes, oh, he's still golfing. He's still, you know, at the property, you know, whatever it is. A few days go by and they still haven't heard from him. They know something's really wrong. So a man search goes, goes into effect looking for him. And they finally locate his car days later. And then about 20 days later, they locate his body on August 13th. And it's clear that he has been um, killed as a result of a robbery um, with gunshot wounds. Um, And it's a really tragic moment because I think anybody who has a close relationship with their father, you know, understands, you know, someday that their their dad's not going to be around. And to have to face that is incredibly difficult. And then to have that become a reality and for 20 days, not knowing, you know, where your dad is, if he's alive, you know, you assume the worst. I have to imagine it was a really trying time for Michael and his family. But then to make it even more difficult is that people begin to speculate. Journalists, reckless journalists start to speculate about his murder being linked to Michael's gambling. And, you know, I I wanted to get your thoughts on that because I certainly have mine. But I kind of wanted to get what your feeling was when that whole speculation kind of started to get mentioned um, in the same breath as, you know, the tragedy of, of Michael losing his father.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, the game plan in life is that, you know, your parents grow old and and die of natural causes. Um, And whether you have a close relationship with them or not, um, when you have a deep relationship like he did with his father and not only does he lose him early, he, is murdered. You know, it's not like he lost him to cancer or, you know, an accident. Um, You know, this was obviously blatant murder. Um, And I think during that time, you know, what was with his gambling issues. So I think that was the easy finger to point by the journalist to get that quote unquote clickbait. You know Um, I don't think it was very uh, professional of them. I think, you know, like he said, these are people that didn't know who he was. Um, You know, I know last last episode I was, argue with myself of whether Jordan had a gambling problem or not, but, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't really think he did, you know, it's his money. He can do whatever he wants with it. He wasn't doing anything illegal. Um, and he obviously had the money to pay, you know, any huge debts was like Mm -hmm. $1.2 million debt that he had in that, in that golfing, uh, (laughs) bet. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, that was, that's something that I grew up, uh, as, um, you know, a, uh, conspiracy and and obviously I was three years old, so I don't know what to believe at the time. So you hear that as a kid and, and that's obviously a, an idea or, or the way that you think that it might've possibly happened. Um, you know, the way that they show it, I, I just don't see any, um, any way that it would be connected with his gambling. Uh, what I would like to see is those two 18 year olds that they, that they charged with murder to see what, you know, I, I'd like to pick their brains, you know, see yeah. what, why did they do it? You know, what was the reasoning behind it? I mean, he was driving a Lexus pulled over parks. I mean, he's an easy target, but I don't think it was at all related to the gambling. Yeah.
0: I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, uh, I think that it's really tragic that, you know, people for the sake of, uh, of, of, Sensationalizing his death, decided to to take it upon themselves to write a sexy story, to try and take something that was clearly tragic for a family and try and make it something more, just for the sake of selling newspapers or magazines or or you know getting up the list of you know uh, you know jumping you know the the corporate ladder at a, at a newspaper or whatever it was. You know I think it's really easy when when people are are up on a pedestal to try and throw stones to knock him down. And, you know, the people that knew Jordan best, and even reporters like Sam Smith, who didn't always write positive, glowing things about him, say the guy who wrote the Jordan rule, say the, the, that that notion that this was linked to some seedy underbelly that Michael was involved with, was total bullshit. And to, to grieve over the loss of a loved one is hard enough. But to have everybody... You know, probably including some of your teammates having to hear and maybe even to some extent believe that this was some vast conspiracy, you know, surrounding the death of his father. It's just insulting and it's, you know, shame. I know hindsight's 20, 20, but it's kind of like shame on you. Like, like without any proof, without any, any quotes or evidence, you just kind of tarnish a guy's character. And, you know, they did kind of the same thing with the Sports Illustrated piece um, when he was trying to take a swing at baseball, no pun intended, um, which we'll get into. So Michael retires abruptly, like five days before the season starts, Um, and largely because he had had conversations prior to his dad's death about uh, retiring and playing baseball. And I think for anybody, you know, in any career, you start to get burnout and you feel like a change is needed. Um, and Michael lived and breathed being Michael Jordan and playing basketball, it seemed like 24-7. I don't think the man had a single solitary second to himself. And they mentioned in the documentary that him deciding to go and play baseball for you know 21 months or whatever it was, gave him an opportunity to understand what it was like to live life without his dad, without all the distractions of being Michael Jordan in the media. And yeah, to a certain extent... He's drawing huge crowds to double a ball and he's getting questions and he's getting cover stories written about him in sports illustrated, but he's not Michael Jordan, the the NBA superstar anymore. He's Michael Jordan, the former NBA superstar who's chasing this ridiculous dream. So I think it was, I think for the sake of Michael's future success in the league, I think it was almost necessary for him to go away because who knows if they repeat in 95 or 94, 95, and who knows what that does to his legacy. And it certainly adds to the mystique of the what ifs, but so Michael goes in and starts playing baseball and there's a lot of naysayers and people telling him he can't do it, including writers at sports illustrated. But what I think a lot of people don't understand or didn't at the time was how greatly it was motivated by the tragedy of losing his dad. Um, so he goes and tries probably from a pick learning, picking it up and learning standpoint, one of the most difficult sports to, to catch up and learn. He hadn't played in 14 years. Um, uh, so we were really young at the time. I was even younger than you were. Do you have any recollection? I mean, we've all seen Space Jam, and that kind of comes out around the same time as all this was happening. But do you have any rec- recollection of that happening? And and what what are your thoughts now on that? You know, we we obviously have modern day examples like Tim Tebow of that happening, but it really is kind of a once in a in a lifetime story.
1: Yeah, no, um, just to backtrack a little bit, um, to him going to baseball. Yeah. I, I think he hit it right on the head. Um, you know, imagine being the most popular person in the world, um, where you can't go anywhere without somebody knowing what you're doing. You know, he just needed a break. And I think, I think, like you said, him taking a break from base or from basketball, um, made him that much better when he came back. Yes. He was a little rusty when he, when he came back, but he was hungrier. Um, and to your point of, of remembering, I do remember I remember watching a game because, you know, I'm pretty sure it was televised, even though he was in double in A. I remember him being in right field and you know how you have a memory of something that you think is like complete fact, but it ends up not being. I could have swore that he made it all the way up to to the majors and played right field for the White Sox. It might have been like a spring training game or, or something like that. But um yeah, you know, in in watching him he was just bad. I mean, he looked like a, a horse on on roller skates when they show him in the gym, uh, you know, walking around. And and his swing was, you know, I played baseball. I'm not a professional baseball player, but his swing, his swing was like, it was like a slap hit. It wasn't gonna. He it wasn't a power hit. He was just trying to put the bat on the ball. Um, and I think that's why he was so successful in those first 13 games because he was just seeing nothing but fastballs. You know, it's real easy just to put the bat on the ball. But then once you start getting those breaking balls, it's it's a completely different ball game. Um, but what was interesting to me was t- Terry Francona makes an appearance, which, which I didn't see coming. But um, not only Terry Francona, but um, uh, Jerry, uh, how do you, I don't know how to say his last name, the no, owner Ryan of the Stork. Bulls and the White Ryan Sox. Stork? Ryan Stork, yeah. Yeah. Both of them truly believed that he could have made it up to the majors. Um, if you just would have had a little bit more time, unfortunately, the uh, baseball strike happened in the middle of it. Um, and that says a lot just from seeing him, you know, swing, seeing him throw, you see him try to, uh, catch a fly ball at the warning track. He just completely whiffs on it. Um, but I think that tells you the type of athlete that he truly was. Um, you know, he wasn't a Bo Jackson or Deion Sanders, but give him a little bit of time, he's going to get to that point. Um, maybe not nearly as successful, but he had the, just the pure athleticism to get there. Um, and it was just all up to getting practice, getting the swings, uh, getting his body ready for it. Um, but yeah, I do, I do slightly remember, um, him playing baseball because yeah, I mean, even when he was in, he's kind of like Tim Tebow, when Tim Tebow went to the minors, everybody covered him, you know? Um, so I do remember that I just I thought that he played for the White side. He made it all the way up to to the majors, but in uh, in my defense is that minor league team, you know, they they're both black and white, same color, yeah. so it probably all runs together. Too,
0: probably some of that too is that if I remember Space Jam correctly, they very much make it seem like he's in the majors in that movie. So that that
1: that could have been that, it. Been,
0: that that might be cuz I that I, could I think have been it for I think me. I'm with you. I for some reason until this week I kind of got on a Jordan kick and I watched the 92 dream team documentary again. And then I watched Jordan Rides the bus to kind of in preparation of this, knowing that, um, this, this episode would cover his baseball stint, just trying to get a little bit more backstory to it. And yeah, I, as a kid, I watched watching space jam in like, you know, 96, 97, 98. Cause I watched that movie so many times as a kid. Uh, it, yeah, they make it seem like he was in the majors. And, you know, I probably want to, you know, do a little revisionist history too, you know, because it, it, in 20 years, people might might think, I, I you know, I played in the majors. Like Brian Scalabrini, after the Celtics won the finals, he's like, in two years, you know, I'm going to tell my, because he didn't play a minute when the when the Celtics won the NBA championship. He was like, in a year, I'm going to tell my kids I came off the bench. In five years, I'm going to tell them <laughs> I started. In 10 years, I'm going to tell them, that I averaged 20 a game and then in 30 years I'm going to tell them I was the goddamn MVP. Like, you know, as, as time goes (laughs) on, the stories get bigger and you know, they kind of change. But, um, so yeah, Yeah. as you mentioned, the baseball thing only lasted until the strike in, uh, 95, uh, or was it in 94,
1: 94, 95? Uh, it was 94. Yeah. 94 season. It was, I think like the 93, 94 season for baseball, yeah. Um, cause I remember being a kid, some strange fact, I remember my next door neighbor growing up had a ball, um, from the 1993, it even said like 93 opening day or whatever. And it was a ball that was never used, um, that Rawlings printed out, um, that I thought was kind of cool. But, um, yeah. And then going back to space jam, yeah, I do remember space jam because yeah, I would have been seven, eight years old, I think when uh, space jam came out. So that was like right in my wheelhouse. That was like. I remember going to the theaters and seeing Space Jam. Um, I remember buying the yeah. uh, Space Jam CD, the soundtrack, yeah. like, and having a walkman. And, like, that was, like, if you were seven, eight years old when, when Space Jam came out and you had that soundtrack, that soundtrack was, like, dope. Like, I mean, yeah. it was, like, jock jams before jock jams.
0: Yeah, because they you had the, the bull Like, I just want to fly. Yeah, it was great.
1: People right. can fly. Yeah. Oh, um, well, yeah.
0: So in that season, that '94 season without Jordan, the uh, the Bulls lose in the uh, in the conference semis to the Knicks without him. Knicks go on to lose to the Houston Rockets that year. And um, in that series, um, another moment sticks out where Scottie Pippen is not necessarily painted in the greatest light, and in the course of this documentary, Scotty has had some moments where you it really runs, you know, contrary to what you've heard about Scotty his entire career. You know, you had him not getting the ankle surgery until the start of the regular season, and he has to miss 35 games um, in '98. And then you see even before that, he essentially refused to go into the game because Phil Jackson called a play to run through Tony Kukoc instead of Scotty. He asked Scotty to inbounds the ball. Now, as a coach, I always tell kids when we're playing defense out of and out of bounds, the most dangerous man on an inbounds play is the man inbounding the ball. So, you know, there's a possibility that they collapse on coach on a double off the ball. Scotty comes in and takes the game winner. Who knows how the play runs out? But Scotty quits on the team, he doesn't go in. coach nails the shot anyway, didn't need him. So it's this bittersweet moment where, okay, you fight back and you win this game on a game winner. And then you have to go in the locker room and look at your leader in the eye and be like, man, you fucking quit on us. And Bill Cartwright, who's a veteran on the team at the time, guy Michael Jordan was not too confident in his offensive abilities, but he could guard Ewing. He starts crying and tells Scotty to his face, like, you quit on us, man. Like, you straight up quit on us. Don't ever do that again. And Scotty, you know, he apologizes, and you know, then he says he does the wrong thing. But then, flash forward to the documentary when they taped his interview, he still says to this day, "I would do yeah. the same thing," which shocked me. Which shocked me, and I was like, "Wow, is Scotty Pippen a little bit more of a shit than we thought he was? Like, is he more of kind of an ego maniac than we thought? Maybe he isn't the, you know, fly under the radar, do all the dirty." The dirty work guy. Maybe he is a little ego driven, because if you look at his 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 career earnings, he earned nineteen million dollars more than Michael did over the course of his NBA career. Yeah, he played a little bit longer, but he still made more money than Michael. He knew he was going to get paid at the end of that season, and he but he also knew he was chasing something special. So just play it out and see what happens. I I, I don't hold yeah. as, as high opinion of Scottie Pippen as I did before. He's still one of the fifty greatest players to ever play but I thought that was an interesting part of this whole documentary. And I don't know if that has to do with Michael trying to make himself seem like more of the good guy from with the production team, but Scotty Pippen does not come off great in the last dance.
1: Yeah. I think, um, after, after these last two episodes, um, you know, Scott Van Pelt always comes on and, um, he was talking to Jason Whitlock and Jason Whitlock said the exact same thing. You know, he was worried that, that Scotty Pippen is now going to get this bad rep um for for this documentary which he kind of has been you know with the 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 migraine the ankle surgery um and then now this um and I think this is on a completely different level because he quit on the team uh like you said you know we've all we played sports you've always you know we've all had that one coach that we just didn't like playing for but I've never had teammates that I I might not have got along with him, but I'm still going to play for him. Um, And I think that's a a completely different level. You know, he didn't quit on Phil Jackson. He quit on the rest of the team. And luckily Tony Kukoc hit that shot to give him a chance in that series. But um, yeah, to your point, like, you know, he says that he would do it all over again. Like what? (laughs) That is for you to have that much time to think about what you did and, and to sit in that locker room after that game and have, one of your teammates that you go through the ringer with through the entire season, break down in tears and tell you how you let the team down and you have all that time and you still would do that. Come on. Like that, that is extremely selfish because that tells me he still wanted to take that shot. And like you said, I mean, he could have, he, he could have potentially got double teamed. Uh, Who knows? Luckily, like I said, coach hit that shot, but, but yeah, that's extremely selfish on his end because like I said, he, he didn't quit on Phil Jackson. He quit on the coach. Yeah. Or uh, quit on the team, excuse me.
0: And it's not like it was a regular season game. It was game three of the Eastern Conference Semis. Like, it is one of them, you know, right. you're in the playoffs, man. It's win or go home. I mean, game three, it's not win or go home. But every possession counts. And especially back in the 90s when scores were like 93 to 90, 91, you know. It, it, yeah. it, it definitely and- it definitely salted my opinion of him a little a little bit. Um, not too much. Cause I still, I think he's great on the jump on ESPN. I think he's a brilliant basketball mind. I think his accomplishments speak for themselves, but you know, he had his moments and maybe it's just one of those things where his temperament is one where it just, it just builds and builds and builds and it occurs in this flare up of a huge mistake. But even, you know, even the biggest, you know, people say, you know, I wouldn't change anything about my life because it, it's made me the man or the person that I am today. But you still yeah, your your experiences are your own, but I think about the really big mistakes that I've made that have hurt people, and I would hundred percent go back and change those. Like in retrospect, right? You 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 want to go back and, and 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 change those moments where you hurt people. So for him to say it, maybe he's more of a stone cold killer than he thought, or maybe he's just a dick,
1: you know? So well, well and and, and to ahead. your point where they were at, I'm sorry, uh, to your point where they were at in the season, you know, you had mentioned money to me, I've always been the type of person that you should play for the love of game. The money's going to come no matter what. And you play to win the game. Hello. Yeah. You play. Hello. That's what, that's what sports are. Yeah. That's what the sport. That's what sports are about. You don't yeah. just play sports. Just the plan you play to say, I beat you. Um, and for them to be in a critical, it, I think this would not be nearly as overblown if it was, you know, game 10 of the season, Um, But for the fact that it was in the playoffs, um, this was his chance to show what kind of leader he could be without Michael Jordan. Now, obviously, I don't think he I think at the end of the day, he didn't want that leadership. He didn't want all the eyes on him. Um, But when someone like Michael Jordan leaves the team and you're all that's left, basically all focal points are going to be on you. So you're going to now you're under the microscope. And the difference between how Michael Jordan handled being under the microscope and Scottie Pippen are two different stories.
0: Yeah, and I think that goes really well into how they ended episode seven because I thought that that was probably the most powerful and emotional episode. Because in the beginning you deal with the death of Michael's father, and at the end of that episode, they kind of asked Michael about the way he treated his teammates. They showed some footage of him picking on Scotty Scott Burrell, you know, during 90, the 98 season when he was a rookie, and you see his interactions and you see him dogging on guys when they're not giving a hundred percent effort and. You know he got into fights with teammates. He said controversial things about teammates, but Michael gets really emotional, and he tells him he tells the interviewer, "Winning has a price, and leadership has a price." And he starts to get like a tear in his eye, and he says, "I challenged players when they didn't want to be challenged, and I pushed them to do something because I wanted to. I wanted to win." And you know he he gets really emotional, and he says, "I never asked them to do. He they know that." Michael, he never asked me to do something that he didn't fucking do. And I got, like, choked up watching that. Like, just to see that you think about Michael Jordan, who's known kind of by people who follow sports. Everybody who follows the NBA well knows that Michael Jordan is a dick. and But you got to see where that comes from. And his observance of, yeah, I may have pushed guys too hard. I may have gone too far. I may have crossed the line. But I pushed them and took them to places that they didn't even think that they were capable of. I made them better because I expected their best. And I, I think it takes a lot of introspection to, to admit, yeah, I was wrong in a lot of cases. But at the same time, it had to be done.
1: Yeah, no, Um. I, I think, yeah, to your point – this was, I think, the most emotional um, episode out of them all so far. I think to me these were my two favorite. I've seen some people that that didn't really like them, um, but like to your point, he was a dick. I I don't care if you're an asshole to me. If we get to the top of the mountain, you know, if you're if you're going to be an asshole and you're going to slow me down and you're going to slow the team down, then get the fuck out. But if if you're going to be an asshole in and, and, and when you know that the base of that motivation is to get to the highest of high, then, then you should be able to to deal with it. I think, you know, he even said, um, or Steve Kerr had mentioned it, you know, that Jordan had said, if you can't take this pressure from me, you're not going to be able to take the pressure from the NBA playoffs. And he's 110% right. And my favorite quote was, you know, when Jordan said, you know, I wanted to win, but I wanted the team to be a part of it as well. Um, You know, I think I get a little bit of flack at work when I did have a job. You know, of of being a little bit of an asshole uh, to some of my coworkers, but that's because you know I want them to be pulling the same weight that I'm pulling. Uh, I want us to be successful, Um, and I think they even they even touched it touched on it in the episode that uh, you know off the court, Michael Jordan was was relatable. He was the nicest guy. You see him, um, you know, like you said, give Scott Burrell – shit through the entire episode and then scott Burl brings some of his friends uh from yukon into the locker room and, and jordan sits there on the training table signs autographs shoots the shit with them asks about them you know that's because he cared about scott and he you know he gives scott you can see he gives scott a little bit of shit during the interaction with with scott's friends but it's it's from it's from a place of of caring you know all love and you know like he said I think he might've made Scott a, a better player than what he was. Now, I don't think Scott Burrow was a awesome player by any means, but he probably was a lot better than what he could have been without Jordan. And I don't think that you see that nowadays in sports In sports. It's, you know, po- it's a popularity contest. Um, and I think that's not just in the NBA. It's, it's, it, it is, um, throughout. Um, and I think you got to know your audience. Like for example, you know, Pat Mahomes, is is buddy buddy with all of his, um, you know, all of his teammates like Tyreek and, and Kelsey, but that's because that's he's got a, a, a different kind of bond with those players um, than Jordan did with his teammates. So you kind of have to know who your audience is, and I think Jordan knew more about those players and their abilities than even some of them
0: did. Yeah, hundred percent, and uh, that kind of carries us into '98. Uh, And um, we kind of get to see where they're at in 1998 after beating the Nets. And then you also kind of get to see him coming back for that 95 season and revving up for it, and revving up for it. Uh, One of my favorite characters in this whole thing is BJ Armstrong. Um, He seems like the nicest guy, but also like when you piss him off, like you do not want to fuck with him. He was a little guy. He made the all-star team the year Jordan was gone, um, but he just brings this level of like calmness and like, level-headedness and objectivity to the documentary. He'll tell you straight about Michael, but he'll also praise him for everything that he did well. Um, and then you see him in that 98 conference semis or conference, yeah, conference semis against the Hornets just take off uh, against, against his former teammates. He hits a game winning shot and calls out Phil. He calls out Michael. He makes sure that they know that he was the one that just beat him. And with how well he knew Michael, he should have known what the end result was going to be. You may have won the battle against Michael, but you do that shit and you damn well aren't going to win the war.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, that's, that, that was a head scratcher for me because um, you know, they even go back into it. I think it was either episode eight or, or, or seven when, when Jordan called BJ up, uh, when Michael was playing baseball and during the strike and they, they go get breakfast together. And, and obviously they had a good relationship and, and BJ's like, Hey, you know, come to, the, come to the facility. So he had to have known that like, and I think that even goes back, uh, or goes to, um, uh, Seattle's head coach. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, I'm drawing a blank on him, George, uh, George. Seattle's head coach. The, yes. Yeah. So you have to know who, who you're dealing with. And it's like, why would you, why would you poke the bear? Um, yeah. You know, I get, where, I get where BJ's emotions come from in that game because it's, you know, he, like he said, he had, they had no chance of, of beating uh, the Bulls. So he took his moment and he shined. And going back to playing sports, you know, we've all played against friends um, in competitive sports. And when, I'm playing, when I was playing against my friends um, that were on another team, I tried to elevate my game a little bit more because, you know, I think it, it made the competition a lot better because you had that bragging, right. Um, you know, and he took his moment. And unfortunately I think he just took it a little too far and um, he wasn't, uh, He, I don't think he realized what he was doing at that moment. You know, he was just enjoying what he was able to do at that time um, and didn't uh, understand the repercussions that were, yeah. were about to come his way. And yeah, that was that was just a head scratcher for me. You know, um, he he just got he just let the moment get a little bit too big for him. But at the same time, I mean, like uh, I forget who uh, who made the comment. Um, you know, it was it was like when um, Muhammad Ali, you found out Muhammad Ali could take a punch, could finally get punched. You know, so he ran with it. You know, BJ really ran with it, and uh, and you know, good for him. You know, he had his one, his one shining moment, but uh, yeah, it ended up costing him in the end. Yeah, and uh, as Michael showed him, no one
0: makes him bleed his own blood, and uh, yeah, <laughs> he 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 took care of the Hornets in efficient fashion, winning the series four to one. Um, and again, it's hard to kind of go do this in like timeline order because of the flash forward and flashback, but right, you see the conclusion of the '95 playoffs when Jordan comes back that April to play, and. Um, they eventually lose to the Magic in the Eastern Conference Finals, or Eastern Conference Semis, one or the other. And uh, Michael comes back wearing number 45, which was the number he wore with the Birmingham White Sox and the number that he wore originally when he first started playing basketball. And Nick Anderson makes a comment like 23 is like the you know the greatest of all time, like 45s, you know. Not his airness. He's got a little rust on him. So Michael changes the jersey the next night, goes back to 23, and has a game against the Magic. Now, it's ultimately all for naught because the Magic end up winning that series and going on to face Houston in the NBA Finals that year. And that was a great Magic team, one that probably should have won a championship. And that's another one of those what-if teams with Shaq and Penny Hardaway and Horace Grant and Nick Anderson and a large collection of talent. But after that loss... Michael hadn't really been training for basketball up to that point. And that summer, he's got to go film Space Jam. So he gets Warner Brothers to basically build him a state-of-the-art pop-up facility. And I think he essentially, they talk about it, he brings all these NBA guys in to run fives with him while he's there, while he, in between him lifting weights and filming the movie. But Mike kind of tricked him into basically every big foe he had coming up against him in the East, Reggie and Patrick Ewing and all these guys get some to come out. Oh yeah, sure, we'll come out to LA and play play pick up with Michael. And he got to see, he got like, you know, secret intel on what Reggie had been working on in the offseason, what Patrick had been working on in the offseason. And he geared up for until 2016, the greatest regular season in the history of the NBA. That following season the Bulls go 72 and 10, cruise to the west or cruise to the to the NBA finals. And ultimately defeat the uh, Seattle Supersonics, who had the best record in the West that year, uh, pretty handedly. It did go six games. But, yeah, I just want to get your thoughts on if you were a competitor of Michael's, why would you want to go to Los Angeles, help him get better at basketball for an entire summer, just just come back and start dominating the league again? Like, what in your right mind would drive you to do something like that? Because most of those guys weren't even in the fucking movie.
1: Right, yeah, I think what um, uh, Charles Barkley, um, Patrick Ewing was in the was in Space Jam, and I can't remember who Sean, else. Um, Sean Sean Bradley uh, Sean, and Mugsy Bogues. Yep, yeah, exact. Okay, yeah, and no, yeah, that's that's kind of. I, I think that kinda, kinda goes back to the type of competitor that Jordan was. Um, you know, I know for a fact that that jordan did not pitch uh any of that as hey let's you know let's i want to see how you guys play he pitched it as dude i just got warner brothers to build me this badass dome out in la um let's just play some ball you know um and if i'm reggie miller if i'm i'm not turning that down you know you're telling me to go out to warner brothers studio to play basketball for some pickup games yeah i'm gonna do that um but uh yeah, like I said, that's the type of competitor he was because I think those players were there just thinking, "Hey, we're just have we're gonna have a good time, you know, let's just check this out, um, and, and get to play some ball." Well, Jordan is is, is taking this as um, two things. I get to see how my competitors are doing because these are these are young guys that he doesn't have much scouting report on, and, and he even said it himself with these younger guys. I think it conditioned him a lot better. It, it got him into that basketball shape a lot quicker. Um, than, than what anybody else could do, because, you know, he's running, he's run the floor with, with younger guys and, and he's getting a little bit older now. Um, but that, that got him in shape and, um, yeah, I just, I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, I thought it was crazy because, you know, he's Jordan sitting there saying, well, I need to work out. Warren Brothers says, okay, no problem. We'll, we'll build you a, a state of the art Jordan dome, if you will, you know, that has nothing to do with the movie, <laughs> you yeah. know. Outside of just getting him into shape, yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah, it was just an incredible. I, I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, you played right into his hand. Like at this point, y'all have been playing with Michael for some of you guys for a decade. You got to be smarter than that. But so yeah. fast fast forward to the '96 finals. Um, kind of bring this dad, Michael's relationship with his father, full circle. Um, Michael wins the NBA Finals in Chicago on Father's Day um, game six Uh, to that point uh, I think Michael hadn't fully come to grips with it at least the way that they had talked about it Um, but then you see the emotion that he showed after winning it it was almost more it was more emotional than he had won his first in 91 he was like hyperventilating on the floor like crying so hard and uh, another moment where that just kind of brought a tear to my eye where you see that he's human and you see that he feels just as much as anybody else. Um, he has good days and bad days and his heart breaks just like the rest of ours can. Uh, I thought that was a really humanizing moment. And, you know, it, it's a shame that it felt like he was under a microscope because you see him having this raw moment and then you see all these cameras on the floor like crowded around him. And today, people would probably look at that and say, oh, look at him staging that. But you could hear it in those sobs, Like, that was raw, pure, you know, unadulterated emotion that we saw from Michael then. And that had to have just been, like, while it's probably so sweet to come back and win a championship in your first full year back, it probably had to just be so heartbreaking to think, this is the first ship I'm winning without my dad to celebrate with. Uh, And that's got to be hard.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, um, even backtrack a little bit more, them losing to the Magic, they talked, um, I I forget who it was, it wasn't Bill Paxton, it was some other, the other tall white guy, uh, um, said them losing to uh, Orlando might have been the best thing for Michael um, and the team, um, because his trainer, you know, even said, usually Michael will take a few weeks off, um, and, you know, hey, hit me up whenever you're ready. Michael said, I'll see you tomorrow. And I think, I think, like you said, full circle, it's on top of losing his father. um, He showed it wasn't just losing his father. I don't think, I think it was the, um, the comeback, you know, I think that was really what was setting in for him that, um, you know, look how hard I worked in pretty much a year to get my body from playing one professional sport to another. um, And yeah, like I said, pure emotion. Um, you know, I can't imagine winning something and being just completely swarmed. Um, my dad had stepped down and and that scene happened to be playing and my dad coached basketball for 30 years in KCK and, you know, was a big Jordan fan. And he even said, he's like, how can you not like Michael Jordan, you know, after this, you know, I, I, I know this, this whole documentary is, is supposed to paint Michael Jordan in a, in this very, you know, limelight esque, but it's pretty raw too, because like you, like we said earlier, he even admitted he was an asshole. Um, You know, I think he knew everything of what he was doing, but he knew that at the end of the tunnel, he could, he could get any team to where he wanted them to be. You know? And I think he even said that like at the end of episode seven, like if if you want to play that way, referring to not the way that I expect, then go ahead and play. And that made him emotional because you could, you could tell he was that he cared that much um, because he wanted the best out of everybody. And I think, you know, like I said, just, yeah, I can't imagine, um, you know, losing your best friend and, and that's the first, you know, the first time without him, Yeah. you know?
0: And, you know, just kind of put a, put a, uh kind of a cap on, on this Michael Jordan conversation until next week um, yeah to your point I've grown I always admired and loved Michael Jordan um, as a kid you know playing growing up playing basketball playing for a little bit in high school as a guard you know I wasn't a point guard I played the two you know it was D Wade, Kobe and then Michael Jordan who I like wanted to play like you know, I would do the, the Jordan on Craig Elo against the Cavs shot in my backyard because that was kind of the way my yard was set up. It was perfect. You know, I'd come right across the free throw line and do it. But this documentary has made me as an adult embrace Michael Jordan the person more than I had previously. To hear the, his attitude about winning, to hear his attitude about making himself and his teammates better at the same time and asking for your best, and not settling for anything less, for you know paying your dues, for taking the bumps and the bruises, and still coming out on top at the end. Uh, it says a lot, and I think people—you can either admire him for it, you can point out the faults, but still admire him for it. And I think this this documentary should let people know, like it's okay to, you know, look at him objectively and and say, okay, yeah, he did some things that were a little distasteful and probably wrong. But at the end of the day, you have to admire the work ethic, the commitment, the passion that he played with, and the example that he set for generations. I mean, people want still today want to be like Michael Jordan. And you know people talk about the comparisons of LeBron James to Michael Jordan or Kobe to Michael Jordan. In my opinion, there hasn't been one since. And I don't think there ever will be one in, in terms of his competitiveness, his intensity, and the way he played the game.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, something that I was going to touch on and I think it's great transition is I truly hope that this documentary series, um, rejuvenates a generation to play like Michael, you know, um, I know LeBron is a, is a great role model right now, but I think that's apples to oranges of, of their play styles, their, their leadership styles. Um, and I think, you know, not to sound like a an old person, but, um, you know, I think that's kind of what this next generation really kind of needs is is kind of a, uh, you know, a, a, a different work ethic. Um, you know, not to say that LeBron doesn't have any great work ethic or anything right now, but it's it's just completely, it's a different style of work ethic. Um, and I'd like to see that that work ethic that Jordan had kind of come back. I think you're going to get better players from um, from that style of work. I think now that's just my opinion, but, um, yeah, I, I, I hope that there's families that are watching this. There's little kids that are watching this that are, that are now recaptured by Jordan. I think, you know, obviously Kobe and, and LeBron have have the limelight right now, but I think, you know, it would be interesting to see, um, a new generation that, was technically kind of like raised on these documentaries um, that does go back and watch the the games and wants to be more like Mike and less like LeBron. Yeah. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And, you know, even today, Trace McGrady said today he wishes when he was a young player that he had seen the last dance and he could see what it, what it truly takes, the amount of sacrifice that it takes, sacrificing time with your family and yeah. your friends, sacrificing your life essentially for the sake of greatness um, because you've got all the time in the world after your playing days are over to sit back and, you know, smoke a cigar, sip a little bourbon and, and enjoy the memories. But while you're in it, you only get one shot at it. You know, some guys don't even get a chance to play in a championship. Um, and Michael took advantage of all six opportunities he, he had and he won all six. And so if you love him or hate him, you got to tip your cap to him. And if he's not the greatest. Yeah if he's not the greatest player in your, in someone's opinion, he's got to at least be two. And if he's not one or two, I don't value your opinion as a basketball fan. So, um, so that's,
1: yeah, I would echo that. Yeah. yeah I would echo that. Yeah. No, so, it's um, funny you say, uh, Tracy and Grady, because yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up on Jordan, but, but Tracy Grady was right behind him. And I, that was, I didn't, I've never owned a pair of Jordans. Um, mm-hmm. My first basketball shoes were, were the T-Max, like the the first, like Tracy McGrady's. I remember busting those out in like eighth grade. And I, yeah, I felt like I could fly. Yeah. And I was like probably like five foot at the time.
0: I had a pair of T-Max when I was in seventh grade. And yeah, t Mac was like, was huge because he was still with the Magic at the time. And like, I was obsessed mm-hmm. with Tracy McGrady. Um, yeah, the t Mac and Dita shoes were like the hot ones to have have back in the day um that that i and so to to your to the last prompt on the on the rundown uh, i had to do a lot of convincing with my mom for her to get me a pair of the, of the t-max because my parents are always like we're not we're, we're not spending 150 dollars on a new pair of basketball shoes you get out that east bay catalog and you try and find the coolest <laughs> the cheapest shoe you can find so that was always a battle but uh, in the in spirit of Mother's Day, Smithy, you uh, you wanted us to discuss our uh, favorite favorite moments with mom as kids, um, and so I've been I've got a lot of great memories of my mom, but I've tried to do my best to kind of narrow narrow them down. Um, so, do you want to kick that off, or do you want me to go first?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll t- I'll take it. Um, yeah, no, it's funny you say that because you know my mom, um, you know anybody that's that's listening that that knows my mom, she was. Definitely like the cool mom, you know. She let me throw parties in high school. You know, would yeah. Know, I remember being like fifteen or sixteen, and and I just straight up asked my mom. I was like, "Mom, could could you buy me a Playboy?" And and you know, she <laughs> she went to the store and got me one. You know, so she was definitely the cool mom. Um, and I never had a lot of uh, bad memories with her, but one of my favorite memories. Um, it was bad for me, but one of my favorite memories was probably about the only time that I ever got grounded by my mom. So my dad was a, uh, was a PE teacher and a coach. And so he brought home, uh, an archery set that they used to do back, you know, that we did archery in, in like sixth grade. I don't think kids do it nowadays, but with the dull tip arrows. So my buddy and I, we had this great idea that we would take these arrows, these dull tip arrows, and we'd shoot them straight up into the air <laughs> So we, we, yeah, we're, so we're out in the front yard and, and I've got my bow and arrow and I just cock that thing all the way back and I just launch it and we would run under the house and wait for the the arrow to come back down. You know, most of them hit the, hit the dirt and they're like a foot in the ground. Some of them hit the street and would bounce like 30 feet in the air. Well, one of the last ones, well, the last one I ever did, I, I shoot it straight up in the air and the wind takes it and my mom's car was parked down the driveway this thing comes down and hits her trunk and just boom. I mean, a big bang. Oh, shit, and I don't think bro. my mom's ever came out. Of, my mom's never came out of the house quicker than that. And she just ripped me a new asshole <laughs> and, uh, ground in grounded me. It put a dent in her trunk, probably the size of like, I don't, I don't even know, probably the size of like a baseball. And, Damn. um, luckily, like I said, it, it was, it was a dull tip. So it didn't like pierce the metal or, or yeah. anything like that. Um, but yeah, she came out and ripped me a new asshole, and uh, yeah, I told my buddy I was like, "Well, I'll see you tomorrow." And yeah, <laughs> she she grounded me for the night, and that was about it, you know. Oh, damn. So that was uh, that was probably one of my my favorite memories from from her. But yeah, like you said, I've got millions of, of memories with my mom. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. Growing up, my mom was uh, my mom was fun, but definitely like I I never got grounded by my mom. It was always with my dad. My mom was like the softer one, but um, when I made my mom mad, like that, I knew I really crossed the line. Um, but probably my favorite memory. And if she ever listens to this, it'll probably surprise her that this is my favorite memory. But, uh, I went to the same school, preschool through eighth grade. So I knew all of the same people, like, since I was like, you know, four years old. Um, and my mom until my sister, my second sister was born, had taught high school English. Um, Uh, as her career at Shawnee Mission East High School. And when I was going into eighth grade, they had uh, the eighth grade homeroom position open up um, for eighth grade homeroom and science teacher. And my mom got asked by by the principal if she would consider coming out of retirement to teach. Retirement, like my mom was in her 30s at the time. And my mom decided she wanted to come back and teach. She asked me first and she was like, would you care if I like was the other eighth grade homeroom for like your last year of school at this school, you know, top dog, finally got to eighth grade, like, you know, BMOC, whatever it was. And I wasn't cool by any means, but it definitely wasn't going to help being cool if my mom was the other <laughs> grade teacher. So I was like, you know, being a good son, I was like, no, I don't care if you teach, like, that's fine. But I was really apprehensive and totally, like, scared about it. And, you know, there were some times where I, like, didn't, wasn't a huge fan of her being a teacher, because, like, my friends would get in trouble, and then they'd be pissed at me. But honestly, some of my (laughs) my favorite memories of my mom are, like, just, like, spending time with her after school, like, working in her classroom on homework, and just, like, getting to be around my mom, like, all day, like, she, she'd be shocked to hear this. Cause I don't really tell her it enough and I probably should, but I really enjoyed that year of school having her like right next door knew if like, I, it definitely kept me in line. Cause any trouble I got in was like, I didn't even have to wait to get home to hear about it. Like I was going to hear about it at school. Um, but just having her around all the time and she still teaches there to this day. So like I coach her, some of her students and I get to connect like with her, on, like the kids she still has, uh, in her homeroom and they asked me about her and they ask her about me when they're in class they're like Mrs. Randolph did you see your son today like all that kind of stuff so when she took that job it really kind of changed like our just kind of our whole life like we're very much a part of that community at St. Elizabeth still to this day and I think a large part of it has to do with my mom you know still being there and being like one of the main faculty people at the school so that's definitely my favorite memory and uh it's still one because it's still ongoing. So it's still keeping connected yeah. with that community there. So it's real special. So yeah. uh, I think that uh, I think that wraps up the show. We're about ten minutes shorter. I think that's that that shows mathematically so only worth about ten minutes of uh, of show time. So uh, you know, see how it goes next week when he's back back on the ones and twos.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean if we get a lot of five star ratings after uh this episode we might have to have some hard talks. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. have some I mean after, after the time. last episode of me being blacked out, that was uh that was fun fun one to listen to. I was like, Man, did we even get to any of this <laughs> stuff that we talked about? And and yeah, I woke up the next morning with the lights still on and my jeans on and <laughs> yeah, I, w- I, I was hurting the next day. So was- yeah, I I went zero to I went to zero to a hundred, like real quick. I was like, Oh yeah. I was like, I'm ready to do this episode. And then, like I said, probably like talking about Alex Smith for like 45 minutes. I, uh, I I got blacked out.
0: I only realized the mute feature, like in the last minute of the episode, I wish I had discovered it a lot earlier. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was like, after I got done listening to the episode, I was like, dude, those guys have to like hate me after that one. I was just talking so much shit. Like one of my buddies was like, dude, you didn't let them talk.
0: I was like, yeah, I know. We were laughing about it. We thought it was hilarious. Sawyer was like, I think it, I think it, you know, added some spice to the show. So uh, maybe we'll have another one here. Yeah. So you
1: know. Yeah, I was going to say, we will have to do a, a drunk podcast for sure. I've always wanted to do, like, a, a drunk history podcast. I think that would be <laughs> you know,
0: That would be fun. Well, all right. Well, uh, Smitty, great great seeing you, as always, uh, for all of our listeners out there. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And, uh, you know, pray that sports come back sooner than later.
1: Peace. Peace. The music dies Something in your eyes Calls to mind a silver screen And oh, it's sad